Let's go ahead and get the passage out in front of us, and then we will pray. If you'll stand with me again for the reading of God's Word. And if you're reading from your pew Bibles, it is 1072. John chapter 7, verse 53 is where we're starting. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You can be seated. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for preserving it through the years. Please bless our understanding of it today. Go before us as we dive into this passage. Remove anything that would distract us from what you have for us today. Lord, anything that is of me, push it to the background. And everything that is of you, Lord, let it stick in our minds and marinate in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you open your Bibles, one of the first things that you may have noticed is that this passage is often in brackets or italics or set apart in some way in your Bibles. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's important to note that scholars of textual criticism have theorized for years about whether or not this passage was, it was first in the book of John, where it currently is in a different spot in John, in the book of Luke, or maybe not in the canon of scripture at all. And I think, you know, I think moving forward, we can rest in knowing two things as we head forward with this passage. One, God has promised to preserve his word. Just as God was sovereign over the revealing of his word to the original authors, the inspiring of the word to be written down, the canonization of the word to be complete, and together, and the illumination of his word to be understood and applied, he is also sovereign over the preserving of his word through so, so many years. In Matthew 24, it says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will not pass away. In Psalm 12, God shall preserve his word forever. Okay, the second thing, though, we can rest in knowing is that this story was circulating among the first, second, and third generation believers and was widely accepted as scripture. As one commentator put it, since it is found in the ancient Latin and Jerome's Vulgate, most Western church traditions consider it, consider it canonical. 
got the word, uh, authoritative for Christian theology and worthy to be read as scripture. So let's rest in that moving forward with this passage. This passage is located in the beginning of the chapter 8 in John. It places it smack in the center of the week-long Feast of Booths, where Jesus is providing some rich teaching to the people, and the scribes and Pharisees are getting more and more frustrated with Jesus and his ways. Chapter 8 here starts with the religious leaders bringing stones to throw at this woman, and chapter 8 ends in verse 59 with those same religious leaders picking up stones to throw at Jesus. So we start in verse 53. And everyone went to his home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple area, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began teaching them. And it was common practice of the day to expound on the law, sitting down and teaching in the outer court. And so... um, when we actually walked through this passage in C1, we all sat down together on the ground, myself and all the students as well, and, and the other leaders too. I'm not going to ask everyone to sit down on the ground here. Um, if you wanted to, you could, but it is. But that is how, it, how things were often taught in the day, which that'll become important in just a, a couple verses here. So verse 3 picks up. Now the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery, And after placing her in the center of the courtyard, and we're going to pause there for just a second. So here we have Jesus and a crowd sitting down on the ground, listening probably intently to him. And then the scribes and the Pharisees come, in my imagination, come barging in and place this woman in the center of the group. I think the way that this is worded, this is an intentional scene-making thing that they're doing. I imagine they're strategically not quiet about this, bringing this woman in. They're wanting a fight. And in the midst of a group of people that's mostly sitting, here they have placed a woman standing. And we don't know much about this woman, but the words caught in the act of adultery indicate to us that this is abrupt for her at best. So verse 4 picks up. They, the scribes and Pharisees, said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Now they were saying this to test him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. So we get a peek into their motives here in verse 6. They were saying this to test him. They were setting a trap for him, and we'll get more into this in just a second, but let's take a moment to recognize this woman, this child of God, that is being used as a pawn by these religious leaders to trap Jesus. You know, we don't have a, we don't have details about this alleged adultery. We don't know where the man was. We don't know if this was a setup or if this was an ongoing thing for her or what she was wearing at the time, but what we do know is that in a culture that regards dishonor as similar to death, this woman's humiliation would be no small thing. It would affect her entire family, their status, and acceptance in the community. To complicate matters further, there was a double standard back in the ancient Near East culture when it comes to sexual honor of men and women. 
a man standing his honor was not as impacted by offenses or public dishonor. And it actually, his honor could be rebuilt. Not so for women's. A woman's honor, though, once lost, was lost forever. And her honor had impact on all the males in her family. But this wasn't vice versa. So the using of this woman as a pawn here has such far-reaching ripple effects. But as we already saw in verse 6, the religious leaders, though, are not mostly concerned with this woman, her honor, or even avenging the wrong done or dealing with the adultery. They're most concerned with trapping Jesus. And the trap they set for Jesus is multi-layered. The Jewish law says that the consequence of adultery is death in most circumstances. And we see this in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and the Mishnah. Um, and yet, Jews did not have the authority to carry out capital punishment under Roman law, which is what they were under at this time. So that's one part of the trap. The other part is that Jewish law requires both the adulterer and the adulteress to be present when punished. So here's this trap that they've set. So basically... If Jesus says, yes, let stone her, the punishment, he violates the Roman law, and his grace-filled teachings go out the window that he's been become known for, and he's at risk of violating Moses' law that both the adulterer and adulteress be punished together or be present for dealing with it. But on the other hand, if he says, no, don't stone her, essentially, he could be opposing the law of Moses, lose credibility as a rabbi, and be seen as being soft on sin. So, with this setup, imagine with me the crowd that knows all of that context and all of that background there, sitting wide-eyed wondering, what will Jesus do? They may know the scribes, the Pharisees, they may know the woman standing in the center, they may also be thinking very personally, what will Jesus do? Because they know that they themselves could just as easily be that woman in the center. They know that they too have stuff in their life and they've wondered, how would Jesus respond if he knew? What would that be like? And here, <laughs> we, get, we get a bit of an indicator in the next part of this verse. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote in the ground. Oh, this but Jesus moment. He wrote in the ground, and though it wasn't actually abnormal for teachers of the day to stoop down and to write in the ground as they taught, um, this is actually the only time that we see Jesus doing this in Scripture. It says to me that there's something intentional about that. There's something that he's trying to do. Um, years ago, when I first started working at the mission, uh, I hadn't had much de-escalation training or whatnot, and there was this... Um, the only time that I've ever felt like I almost, I had to break up a physical fight or I thought that I was going to was over a diaper genie. And does, if you know what diaper genies are, there's these like tall cylindrical, usually white things um, that you put diapers in and they're supposed to mask the diaper smell. Um, they don't really mask the diaper smell. Um, but, you, but that's how they advertise them and how they get people to buy them. And so there's these things. And so we had them at Agape um, at this wo woman's shelter. And people would put all their diapers in, and then there was somebody's chore every week to take out the bin of diapers, the bag. 
Um, well, unfortunately, that week, a staff person had assigned somebody a chore, that chore, and this woman had no kids in diapers. Her kids were well out of diapers. She'd passed that stage, and I'm still in the midst of that stage, so I can only dream of that, but I can, but I can empathize with the oh, yes, once you're done with diapers, you're kind of done with diapers. And so she did not want to be the one taking out the diapers that day. And somebody didn't load it right, and there was all this stuff. So this argument broke out, and I was in the office at the time, and the energy started rising, the anger and the frustration. And I stepped out of the office to these two women, and then everyone gathered around watching. And these two women going at, and they were yelling at each other. They're puffing up, and there's, you want to take this outside? And I was like, oh my goodness, over diaper genies. And I didn't know what to do at the time other than, I, uh, this was very in, improvised, I got on a chair and then stood on the table and was like, hey, we can figure this out. Nothing I said at that moment really diffused the situation, right? But everyone paused and stopped what they were doing and were probably thinking to themselves, what in the world is Bridget doing? Like, this is weird. What is she doing? And it redirected suddenly the focus was not on each other, was not on the diaper genie, it was on this weird staff person standing on the table. And they were curious and wondering. And we don't actually know what Jesus wrote on the ground. So we trust we don't need to know that in order to know the full power of this passage. But what we do know is that in the midst of great humiliation and accusations and anger, Jesus took the focus off of the woman. He took the focus off of the woman standing in the center that was experiencing probably such shame and humiliation and redirected all of that anger, all of that stuff on himself. And I can imagine, you know, everyone sitting and Jesus stooping on the ground writing, people starting to crane their necks to see. The scribes and the Pharisees looking on and looking in, as well as the bystanders, kind of wondering. And this person being kind of curious to them. And maybe he was writing the passage from Deuteronomy where that double standard regarding sexual sin is actually dealt with. Or maybe he's writing the sins of the people represented in that group. We don't know. Regardless, though, it's probably infuriating the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Like, they came for a fight, and he's not giving them a fight. He's just calmly writing in the sand. And we see this in verse 7 when it says, When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. I love this. This is the wisdom we see in 1 Kings chapter 3 with Solomon. In a situation that was already very complicated and full of layers, Jesus cuts to the heart. In some ways, he makes things ten times more difficult by bringing everyone else's sin into the conversation. And in some ways, he makes it so much simpler by cutting through all of those layers to the heart of the problem and the heart of the people. He exposes the full spectrum of sin on display rather than putting one sin on a pedestal. You know, where we have a tendency to focus on one sin over the other, Jesus, he just doesn't play that game. Jesus essentially is saying to folks here, well, you want to talk about Moses' law? Well, then let's talk about all of it. Because it would say we are all guilty. 
And before we move on quickly past this point and kind of write off the scribes and the Pharisees as these overzealous religious leaders, I, d- I don't think we're immune from this. I don't think we're immune from using scripture to protect ourselves or preserve our way of life or our reputation or our status. You know, over the last couple of weeks, as I've read this passage, um, one of the things that uh, Jesus has been speaking to my heart through this passage and the ways that I could see myself easily falling into this trap with the religious leaders is as he's spoken to my, my foster mama heart, one of the things that he said is, you want to talk about my heart for vulnerable kids? Well, then let's talk about my whole heart for them. Let's talk about all of it. Because that same heart that I love vulnerable kids with is the same heart that I love their parents with. Same heart that I love their families. And I know God is for the preservation of families. He did design them, after all. And I know he's for the protection of kids and wants them to know him and to be safe. But if I rightly understand God's heart for families, I cannot just be for the preservation of my own family. I also cannot say I am for vulnerable children, but not for their parents. God's heart is bigger than that. And yes, it is messy, (laughs) and it is complicated. But I think that this is where the religious leaders got hung up. They got so concerned with following the law, protecting themselves, their way of life, and their reputation and status, that they missed God's heart. In their trying to trap Jesus, they missed this woman as collateral damage in their plan. In their attempt to seemingly, on the outside at least, uphold family and marriage, they missed God's heart for restoration and how family and marriage can be a display of gospel grace and forgiveness. Just as if I emphasize God is for a child, I can miss the implication that, of course, God is for their parents. Jesus' wisdom here is countercultural, and it's often still countercultural. And when I say countercultural, I, I mean counter to our religious culture. But it's life giving, it's rich. And Jesus reminds us and them of the full heart of God. And I love this in verse 8. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Verse 7 is really kind of this like mic drop moment for Jesus. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And he, he doesn't pause, he doesn't stare them down. He doesn't nag them. He doesn't remind them of all their sins. He goes back to writing on the ground. And I can imagine if I was, you know, in the group... There could be shock, there could be embarrassment. Regardless, there's wind out of their sails, and the fight has left. In verse 9, now when they heard this, they began leaving one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the courtyard. You know, this is further evidence that the people had come with the purpose of dishonoring Jesus, not to carry out the law of Moses. They left. And then verse 10, and straightening up, Jesus said to her, 
from the records we have, this he is the only one to address her. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? The term for woman here is entirely radically respectful. Um, Years ago, uh, about seven-ish years ago, when I read this story back at the mission, I did what I usually do. I read the passage and then ask, hey, what stood out to you in this group? And it was a small group of women. And, um, you know, there was the normal responses. Oh, the older ones left first. Maybe they knew more about um, their sin and need for forgiveness. And um, the writing in the sand, that was kind of weird. Like, what's up with that? Uh, And then there was one woman, though, in the group that said she stayed. And I thought, oh, what? And she goes, the woman, she stayed. That's what stands out to me here. She stayed. And I thought, oh, yes. One, like, her interpretation, her understanding of this passage reminded me, like, yeah, the woman had choice in this. In a, in a place where, like, so much had already been taken from her and so much power had been taken, like, yes, she did have choice in that. And two, that is wild. Like, she did stay. She didn't run for the hills as they were all leaving and walking away as they dropped their stones and saying, like, I'm free, I'm done, I'm heading out. But she, she stuck around. And, you know, maybe she feared retribution if she left. Maybe she'd accepted her fate. Maybe she'd become hardened to some of the accusations depending on what her life had been like prior to this. Maybe she felt like, yeah, I could take it. I also think maybe she saw something in Jesus. I wonder, too, you know, she may have had a front row seat to whatever he was writing in the sand. And I wonder, maybe it was to her. Regardless, there, there could have been something peculiar to her about Jesus. Something like, this guy who made all my accusers leave, he's maybe worth sticking around for and, think, and trying to figure out, like, what is up his sleeve next? What's he going to do? What's he going to say? And I do want to make this distinction, though. She did not stay because he glossed over her actions. Part of Jesus' safety comes from his commitment to truth and grace. We do no one any favors when we gloss over things, actions, sin, behaviors that hurt themselves, hurt other people, and hurt their relationship with God. Jesus' actions still, though, are in stark contrast to her accusers. He is calm and writing in the sand, well, they are a flurry of excitement and energy and activity and combarging in. He is invitational in his questions, and they are demanding in their persistence. He is quiet and gentle while they are loud. He could have answered all the questions, yet he asks them anyway. While they act as if they know it all, yet know so, so little. And verse 11 has her response to Jesus. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, do not sin any longer. In her staying, she found healing. In her staying, she found forgiveness. In her exposure, she found grace. And we're reminded here that Jesus came to not condemn, 
but to save. An encounter with Jesus should leave us transformed, fully known and fully loved. Back in the garden, Adam and Eve hid. They tried to hide their shame. And yes, in their being fully known, they experienced consequences. But they also experienced protective love. Just as on the cross, Jesus takes on our sin, our accusations, our punishment. Here we see Jesus put himself in the way of those things for this woman. One of the fascinating things about this story is that we may simultaneously identify with each of the characters in it. Um, And the reality is they all need healing. They all need Jesus. And may, you know, we've talked about the scribes and the Pharisees and kind of their, the trap that they fell into and that sort of thing already. And I want to focus in a little bit on the, the woman here just real briefly as we close up. Maybe like the woman, you did not come to a face-to-face with Jesus of your own accord. Maybe you feel like a- some other people's actions or circumstances or something else brought you to this place of being face-to-face with Jesus and needing his grace and his forgiveness, or maybe it's a mix of both, and maybe you feel that. You feel that heaviness. And whether you're a willing participant or not, though, Jesus deals with each of us with such wisdom and gentleness. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are wise and that you are gentle, Lord, with us. Lord, as as we head into a time of healing prayer, next, Lord, I pray, Lord, that within each one of our hearts, Lord, that we would be reminded of your gentleness with us of your love for us, Lord. And God, I pray that we would have the boldness and the courage to lean in to that, Lord. To stick around for that transformation, Lord, like this woman. And God, we thank you that you offer that space, that you are safe, In Jesus' name, amen.